Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 72, Fire from the Ashes. The Great War was over. The proud country that was Germany was just beginning to deal with their defeat and the blame for the conflagration. And yet, the Allies handled their victory so obtusely, room was being made in many German hearts for revenge. However, blame for overplaying their hand is hard to place before the Allies. This was the first major European war in some time, certainly on this scale, and no one could have predicted how it would play out. No one certainly had a plan or idea of how to put the genie that was peace back in the bottle. Britain would go through its own internal cultural chaos as the roles and positions of so many people had changed over the last five years. In France, as we will see, after attempting to push their desire for revenge too far, would begin to slip into a lethargic trance that would allow, in time, German aggression to go unchecked. As for the former Second Reich, now the Weimar Republic, the progressive politicians might now be in charge, but behind their chests beat German hearts. And in time, perhaps not planned for at first, but even these men who wanted to change so much of Germany would find themselves willingly supporting, nay, guaranteeing that the firm of Fried Krupp of Essen would not founder. Gustav kept his family away from Essen for some time, as parts of the works were still being taken apart or destroyed. And at the Leitch Archduke's estate in Austria, the Archduke whose death started the conflagration, the Krupp family got on with their lives. For Alfred, the oldest child, he spent his time, the very seconds of his day, preparing for the time when he would become the next great Krupp. Visiting mines, learning protocol, absorbing the processes and techniques that went into steelmaking, his days were all planned out for him, which meant Alfred, the true crown prince, had no friends, and really no time for friends. In most ways, he didn't have a father either, as Gustav held him to the highest standards for his own good, and didn't hesitate to humiliate or call the 13-year-old on any mistakes made. As for the rest of the children, they, to a slightly greater degree, got to be children, albeit with a planned-out schedule that would have thrilled any drill sergeant. Soon after the war, Krupps started taking on more workers. They weren't always busy, but they were on the payroll. This went on until July of 1921, when the firm was now employing more Kruppenier than they had in early 1914. Gustav also bought up hundreds of acres of land for a new plant. The near lignite mines would keep the new plant in its needed resources. But who was ordering so much from Krupp that more workers had to be brought on? New plants had to be built. More resources had to be snatched up. Krupp wasn't making weapons. The Allies did not allow it. So who was ordering and what was Krupp producing? The answers were, respectively, no one and nothing. Gustav the diplomat knew that presentation was everything, or at the least the beginning of everything. 
He had to show that his wife's firm was still alive, still a part of the international scene, and still vital to Germany. So a massive show was put on, using the profits from the many years before this moment. For the first three years after the war, Gustav put out more than he made in sales, which was anathema to him, but he was playing the long game. And Lenin, the new leader of Russia, was inadvertently helping him. Lenin had asked Krupps to turn the Great Steppe, well, Russia's part of it, into a giant bread factory for his people. Gustav's brother-in-law, the agricultural expert, knew it could not be done and why this was so. But Gustav went ahead anyway, plowing up 62,500 acres. Why? For show. To show that the firm still had customers. Foreign customers. Yet Lenin of the new Soviet Union got something out of this as well. But no, certainly not bread. This agreement, which had to be signed off by the German foreign minister, Rathenau, gave the fledgling Soviet state its first official recognition. Then the two countries canceled all war claims against each other, which shocked the other 34 nations whom Soviet Russia still owed money. But beyond shock, well, into anger, was the reaction of the German conservatives. How could Krupp, one of their own, do this? But the establishment did not realize how much Gustav needed this dog-and-pony show. As for Foreign Minister Rathenau, he was less lucky, as he was shot dead in the street soon after. He would be the third moderate Weimar politician to be killed in 1922 alone. Traditionally, the firm had always turned east when the west was not cooperating, the one good thing about, geographically, being in the middle. And though the firm lost money in trying to grow wheat for the Russians in the steppe, this failed transaction did open the door for other long-range benefits for Germany. As Soviet Russia had not signed the Versailles Treaty, it was not limited to helping Germany with its rearmaments soon after the war. Moscow got Krupp locomotives, something desperately needed for such a vast country, and Germany got to use some of those vast lands to test their latest designs. Now, this was vital. A strong military meant, one day, a strong Germany, which meant a strong German government. And as long as whoever sat in Berlin believed in a strong Germany, Krupp would be protected. With Soviet Russia now being akin to a Pandora's box, and Germany pulling itself closer to this enigma, many European powers met to discuss Germany and Russia's debt. Yet the French were still in the mood to punish their neighbor, and one can hardly blame them. But their treatment of the Germans was so negative that the Germans and the Russians left the conference in Genoa. This was in late 1922. But then, as the Weimar Republic asked to speak to the Allies about restructuring their debt payments, the French, or more precisely, French Premier Poincaré had had enough. His response was to occupy the Ruhr. On January 10, 1923, the French marched in, joined by the Belgians, and again, 
who can blame them? But having someone join an illegal occupation does not make it legal. The Italians stayed out, and the British openly and in writing accused the French and the Belgians of breaking the law. But they weren't about to start a war to save the Ruhr Valley. Right away, the invaders set up a military government, proclaimed martial law, censored the press, confiscated private property, and exiled some 147,000 people. And the French knew what they were doing, or rather believed they thought they knew what they were doing. By seizing that land that was only 60 miles long and 28 miles wide, the victors now held some 85% of Germany's coal and 80% of its steel production. But all this potential wealth meant nothing if those that lived and worked there resisted. Berlin figured this out right away, so called for passive resistance. France and Belgium reacted, or overreacted, to this by announcing that the Ruhr was in a state of siege. The truth was that the Germans were in a state of Sitzkrieg. So the French and Belgians had the Ruhr, but couldn't do anything with it. People were resisting quietly, but weren't producing, adding to the German economy. The results were a growing tension and inflation. The two sides came to hate each other on a personal level, and the Krupaneers' savings and pensions were worth less each day. This combined effect was known by the Germans as the bayonet. And now, as their treatment had an image tied to it, and that image was a weapon, the stifled, proud Germans were ready to get up from their Sitzkrieg. The first step was to come up with a plan, yet still in their passive mode, the Germans of Essen came up with the idea of tying ropes around the doors to all the factories. If the invaders tried to enter an establishment, the appropriate cord would be tugged upon, word would spread, and the workers would come running. For now, that was as far as their plan went, hoping their numbers alone would take care of the rest. It would not. On Easter Saturday, March 31, 1923, one Lieutenant Dulia, along with 11 men, went to inventory Krupp's vehicles, which were stationed in a garage just across the street from the main administrative building. Gustav had been told the previous day to expect the men, that they were to do nothing more than count the cars. But for whatever reason, Gustav did not make known the coming visit. There is a good possibility that the head of Krupp was playing his own game, as French officers had moved themselves into the Villa Hugel, and against the wishes of the family leader, had not only closed the windows, but had the temerity to have the heat turned on. Each morning, Gustav left from his part of the mansion, sweating, putting him in the most foul of moods. For whatever reason, and it's still not known why, the central garage's lead administrator was two hours late getting to work. Two minutes would have been unthinkable, and yet it happened. So Lieutenant Dulia and his men found themselves waiting and stewing. But at 9 a.m., the man with the key arrived and opened up the garage. That's when the siren from a nearby fire station went off. The Frenchman assumed that there was a fire somewhere, 
and got on with their work. But then a siren across the street started going off. These two sirens caused a cascading effect, which led to more than 5,000 sirens throughout Essen being activated within minutes. Dulio then ran to the main garage door, and what he saw chilled his blood. Some 30,000 men, mostly wearing working caps, were staring back at him. It was then that Gustav called down to the garage. The supervisor answered, confirmed that Gustav's limousine was undamaged, and then heard the line, go dead. The sirens rang out for just over an hour. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Dulia realized he was in a bad tactical situation. He had 11 men against thousands, but he did have a machine gun, so that was set up and pointed at the crowd. This caused them to step back a bit, but they didn't leave, and their expressions of hatred didn't alter. At 10.30, the siren stopped, and the ensuing silence served as the signal the sirens were relegated for. In the quiet, the men stepped forward, but were still outside the garage. This new, quieter stalemate went on for 30 minutes. Then two crumpineer, it's not known if they were under orders, went to the roof and opened up the steam vents throughout the garage. Soon, Dulio and his men were constantly wiping sweat from their faces. Having had enough, Dulio then gave the order to fire a volley over the men's heads. It seems that, and it's now clear, that those in the back simply wanted to get a better look. They started pushing forward, which meant the men in the front were nudged closer to the Frenchmen. Dulio then told his men to aim at the crowd proper. It was 11 a.m. The German workmen stared back. Seeing no other way out, Dulia then said, Commence firing. Within seconds, there were 13 men lying dead, with another 52 more wounded. Of the dead were five apprentices, only in their teens. The French general living at Hugel was told of this and ordered reinforcements from France, but it would not be enough. There weren't enough French soldiers to watch every German. That same day of the shooting, Frenchmen throughout Essen were beaten and robbed. Bridges were blown. French soldiers in Dusseldorf had grenades thrown at them, and one French soldier was killed by a civilian with a pistol in Essen. There was nothing any French politician or newspaper could say to defend themselves. What's more, most other foreign newspapers tore into the French, their sentiments almost as vitriolic as the German declarations. And for all those non-German headlines, each one commented on, it was acts like this that might make the Germans think they had nothing to lose in defending themselves. The French general at Krupp's villa had enough sense to declare that the troops would leave during the funeral to be held. But Premier Poincaré was less perceptive. It was announced that, as the German who had killed the French soldier had gotten away, Essen was to be fined 100,000 marks. Meanwhile, German officials of every conceivable political stripe were now en route to Essen to be a part of the mass funeral, which was fine, but Gustav made it clear to them all and to the world that as these 13 dead men had been Krumpenier, he 
would be the chief mourner. And having studied diplomacy, Krupp would put on a show that rivaled the processions of the great Alfred and Fritz Krupp. On April 10, 1923, every flag within Germany was lowered. Every church bell rang out. The Reichstag met and prayed for the fallen heroes. Krumpenier organized the 300,000 mourners in Essen. The coffins were displayed in the lobby of Krupp's main administrative building. Its 500-man choir sang out, and all of this was done by candlelight. Gustav gave his speech and then moved over to the children and widows of the fallen to give his condolences. Then Gustav led the assembly to the cemetery, the line behind him over a mile long. And in that line were Germans from all over the country, from every level of the economic strata. And for this moment, they were simply Germans, countrymen, with one thought and one enemy. But in case there was any confusion on that second point, when the procession reached the cemetery, the bishop yelled one word, murder. That one word reminded every German there what they had suffered, what they had lost, and of the decay in every sense they were living through. It was at that moment a lone French biplane buzzed the crowd at the cemetery. No, the Germans could not even have this one day to themselves to bury their dead. Their national shame was not allowed to begin to heal. And the French weren't done. Within three weeks, the French officers would interrogate Gustav about the bloody Easter Saturday. And then, when the Krupp leader went to take part in the Prussian Privy Council, along with two subordinates, all three had warrants for their arrest issued. The claim inciting a riot. It's possible that this was done only after Gustav left to serve as a warning not to come back, which Gustav knew would begin the unraveling of everything of his, or his wife's, in essence, or simply that the French needed a scapegoat and decided on him. With Gustav gone, they could claim whatever they wanted, with no one to challenge them. On May 1st, Gustav returned, alone, and was arrested. Though not a brilliant man himself, his accusers were beyond ignorant with their approach in presenting their case. First, they made it clear that the trial was on a military basis, which allowed German newspapers to claim that Krupp was before a French court-martial. Next, they had so many facts wrong, the German defenders had to help them, and through it all, just sitting there, was Gustav, mild-mannered, but passively defiant. The case, as you can imagine, was over in a very short time. Gustav was found guilty, fined 100 million marks, and was to be put away for 15 years. It was clear to every German that this was not about justice, or an attempt to find the truth, but simply to defeat and humiliate the enemy of Paris. And though Germany would continue to tear at itself in trying to find their path into the future, they all agreed that France was their blood enemy, and revenge was the only course. 
Gustav was sent to a Dusseldorf prison on May 9th. That same day, the French barracks in Dortmund were bombed. The French there arrested the German chief of police. This was getting uglier by the minute. But during all this, Gustav sat in his cell, causing no one any problems. Gustav, being who he was, was treated in a manner he had become accustomed to. But through his actions, he had become overnight the darling of every German heart. Everyone in the country was on his side. But what's more, as the national economy began to sink to new lows, Gustav of Krupp, nor Krupps in general, could be blamed for the downturn. It was a brilliant piece of theater on Gustav's part, for that's what it was. If one cannot fight back, then lay low and allow the aggressor's brutality to shine brightest of all. With Gustav laying low, the German mark went even lower. In June of 1923, one U.S. dollar was worth 100,000 marks. In July, it took double that amount to equal a dollar. In August, 500 million marks were needed. In October, it reached 40 billion. The firm was now paying their men every few days just so they could buy food. The well-told tale of a wheelbarrow full of marks to purchase a loaf of bread was now a common story in Essen and throughout Germany. Of course, the firm, even with Gustav in jail, reacted smartly in trying to take care of their Kruppenier. During the second week of June, the board started issuing Krupp marks. They were practically worthless, but certainly had a stronger purchasing power than Reich marks, most notably in the Ruhr. Yet this was little comfort to all those Krupp workers whose savings and retirements were now worth nothing. And yet, no one placed blame on Gustav's head. How could they? He was in jail, preserving Germany's national honor. No, though many fingers were pointed at the Weimar government, Germany's enemies during the war, and, as Hitler would stress soon after, the Jews and the pawnbrokers, to him they were one and the same, no one pointed at the head of Krupp. As inflation continued, along with rising tensions, acts of violence and demonstrations rose. With Gustav in jail for less than a month, violence broke out all over the Ruhr. Workers, some of them Krumpenier, in the tens of thousands, went on strike. Of course, this improved nothing. Had conditions been able to be improved, the Krupp board would have taken such action. But it was beyond them. It was beyond everyone. As for the French government, it attempted to continue on with its policy of strangling Germany's ability to economically get back on its feet. The result? French soldiers continued to be roughed up and killed. All this went on for months, while Gustav was safe, physically and morally, in captivity. Then Paris decided it had not gone far enough. On October 22, 1923, those loyal to Paris declared a Ruhr-Rhineland Republic. But this called for a plebiscite, which dismally failed. The voting showed the French that any plan they attempted, with them in direct or indirect control, would never work. The writing on the wall 
though it had been there for some time, was shoved in their collective faces. French troops began to pull out of Germany. The great revenge experiment was coming to an end. The French premier had lost much prestige, but so had the Weimar Republic. The French couldn't make their plan work, but the German government also proved itself unable to deal with the threat. The current government, under Chancellor Wilhelm Kuno, went under. His replacement, Gustav Stressmann, told his country that their passive resistance had worked, but now was the time to once again interact with the larger European world. Berlin would again talk to the Allies about starting up reparation payments. Many in Germany were not happy with this, but clearly the country had to begin moving forward at some point. Why wait? But to Adolf Hitler, the leader of the National Socialist Deutsche Work Party, that was the wrong question. His question was, why pay at all? The countries had gone to war, and Germany would have won, if not for the November criminals who stabbed the Wehrmacht in the back. But as the Nazi Party, as it would soon be called, now had the backing of none other than General Ludendorff, it was deemed time to take control of the nation's largest state and lead their countrymen, by example, to a position of strength. True that Hitler was an Austrian, but he and people like him raised questions that the government had no answer for. Storming the local government of Munich in November of 1923, the beer hall putched, as it became known, failed. But Hitler was now a hero to many people, and his name and party were mentioned and written about throughout the country. Between the French failed controlled independent or state, the strikes, the violence, and a drop in the value of the French franc, it was deemed best by Paris to leave Germany. This had not been a money-making enterprise, though the Germans had been humiliated, so it was considered a partial success. But what to do with Gustav? Wanting to leave in a position of strength, the French offered him a Christmas amnesty. Not that he had a choice to stay in jail, but first he had to sign a document that he had been justly tried and found guilty. For Gustav, it was time to come home anyways, and begin putting his house in order. So a signature was given, and the French began to leave. But first, they took 21 brand new trains and 123 trucks. There had to be some recompense for their time in Germany. When Gustav returned, he returned a hero. Yet, as he walked through the streets of Essen, he saw firsthand how bad things had really become. It was complete chaos. Crime was everywhere. Even Krupp managers within the administrative building were robbed while they were at work. The boardroom was guarded. Looting happened all over in Krupp's shops and storehouses. The board had begged Berta to sell everything and leave. But Gustav, now that he was back, barely wasted his time in saying no. He had been thinking while in prison and had ideas of how to combat the inflation, the work's lack of orders, and, dare he think it, the disloyalty of the Krumpenier. It was time to trim the fat and take in new orders. The Versailles Treaty 
would have to be worked around. The Soviets, with their desire to grow grain in the steppe, would have to be abandoned. It was impossible. So why waste time and money on it? Gustav then reminded the board, who sat terrorized in their chairs, jumping with each sound of guns going off nearby, don't let the irony of that escape you, asked, does anyone have any idea of how much we own in foreign stocks, in countries that were not currently tearing themselves apart? Krupps had money, they just had to find their nerve, because one day a leader would come, someone to help the Germans pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and he, whoever he was, would be looking to Essen to provide the tools, i.e. the weapons, to help him and Germany get their revenge on the French. <laughs>